0: ministering on humility and humility is one of our core values as a church community and should be for all of us as believers and Nathan jumped in and he started going through an example that Jesus gave us he gave us the ultimate example of humility and I just thought I would start by reading this scripture this morning it says this in Philippians 2 8 this is where we were last week It said, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that the scripture doesn't stop here. This is probably one of my favorite passages when I read the word. Let's carry on. Let's see what else it says. It says, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a powerful, powerful scripture for us. What an incredible thing Jesus did on the cross. He became flesh and blood like you and I. He faced Sin, like you and I, and he overcame sin. And in so doing, he took our sin to the cross and he paid that price for you and I. This is my Jesus. He humbly went to the cross for you and I. You know, I was preparing for this week and I was reflecting on what was shared last week, and as Paul's passionately focusing on Jesus, but I couldn't help just pause for a moment and consider what the significance of what Jesus did on the cross was for me as an individual. And I don't know, some of you don't know me that well, but maybe you'll get some insight into, into my life today. You know, there's a, there's a song that we often sing in worship, and I have a hard time singing it. I honestly, once the, it's a bridge in a song, and once, once someone will start leading it from the front, I'll I'll be singing fine until I get to this bridge. And when I get to this bridge, it's like God reaches down into the core of my being and he strikes a chord and I can't speak. I have a hard time articulating the words. And it says this, you have been so, so good to me. You have been so, so good to me. Oh, to think where I would be if not for you. If not for you. Gratitude just pours out of me for what Jesus did on the cross for me. Gratitude, just I cannot help but be overcome by what Jesus did for me on the cross. You see, when I came back to Jesus, I was an absolute mess. I had substance abuse issues. I had people issues. I had anger issues. I was hurt. I was lost. I was broken. And I didn't know what to do. But I came back to Jesus. I came back to him. And I was reminded of what he did on the cross. Here I was, a mess, lost in my sin. I'm sure you guys can relate. And I couldn't get away from it. It didn't matter how hard I tried. It didn't matter what I did. In my own effort, I could not deal with sin. It was like it was stuck on me. It was like a sign like this that was around my neck and I could not separated. I could not get it off. But you know, when I came back to Jesus, I was reminded that he took this and he did this with it. He took it to the cross. All of it. All of my sin and shame was bought and paid for on that cross. Amen. Amen. In that moment, I was forgiven I was set free, I was healed, I was restored back to right standing with God, just as if I had not sinned. It was gone, it was done, it was finished. This is what Jesus did on the cross for you and I. No other name under heaven can do this for us. Only the name of Jesus. And we can't save ourselves, only he can. We need a savior. As Paul continues in this letter of Philippians, he's so passionate about Jesus and he just he just he's writing to a people so you re, just to refresh you on the context he's writing to a people that know him a people that he knew well he started this church he loved these people and he wanted to make sure that they were protected and that they stayed true to the gospel and in the middle of his letter in his passionate focus on Jesus that you just heard me read, he's then all of a sudden reminded of this religious group, and we're going to read it and pick up in Philippians 3, a religious group that's coming that could taint the gospel that was being preached at the time, that they could come and they wanted to add to the gospel. So we don't want a corrupted gospel, and Paul didn't want a corrupted gospel. So he's addressing them, because it was almost as if these religious folks were promising a, a deeper level of intimacy with God through adding law and legalism back to the gospel of Jesus. And we're going to read it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up in Philippians 3.3. 3. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As for the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, But whatever I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What a passage. There's a lot here. If I could say it in one sentence this morning, it would be this. Christ alone has rescued, sorry, Christ alone has secured our righteousness, and through him we are empowered. Christ alone has secured our righteousness, and through him we are empowered. Amen. We're going to take some time and unpack this. When I was reading this, the first thing I read that struck out to me, knowing the context and seeing how Paul is addressing these people, is that he is ruthless. He is going after religious folks. He is going after something that was trying to add to the gospel. What does he call them? He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. I was reading it, I'm like, man, why is he so ruthless? Can you think of someone else that was ruthless against religious people? Jesus. Jesus was pretty ruthless. Why? Because religion does the opposite of what it intends and what it claims. It does the opposite. Let me explain. It claims to bring us closer to God when, in fact, it takes us further from him. How does it do that? Well, it elevates law, it elevates human effort and things that must be done in order for us to get closer to God. And in the end, it keeps us at a distance. And it leaves us in a place where we're trying to get closer to God, but we just always end up coming up short. Have you tried in your own effort and realized that you come up short when you try and get closer to God? This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to fulfill the requirements of the law and to, and to keep that barrier, not keep the barrier, to take the barrier and dismantle it so that there was no longer separation. Those of us that know the moment that Christ died on the cross, it says that the curtain in the temple that separated the lay people, that just separated the average person from the inner presence of being with God, it was torn. It was torn top to bottom, not bottom to top. It was torn top to bottom to demonstrate that this was something that God had done, not something that man had done from the ground up. Jesus did that from the cross. He tore that cordon top to bottom so that there would no longer be separation for us from him. Amen? Amen. This... You can get excited, I'm sorry, I'm serious, I'm passionate, I'm excited for what I'm reading, because I was so encouraged to be reminded afresh of what Jesus has done for us. So this, to me, the first thing that I look at when I read what Paul's saying, I see how he's going after this, and he's saying, don't add to the gospel. (laughs) And he goes after religion for it. And then he says this, and I think of, well... If we're going to understand and embrace what Christ has done for us, the first thing, my first point this morning is this, we must put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. He says it in 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, circumcision acted as this outward physical sign of an eternal covenant between God and the Jewish people at the time. But now, our lives, our lives of worship to God, are that external example and demonstration of the covenant that Jesus has for us. It's our lives that are worshiping and glorifying God. That's that physical manifestation now. No longer a requirement of circumcision. You see, this leaves no room for stuff that we can do in the flesh. There's no room for what you and I can do. That's why he says, put no confidence in the flesh. The word tells us that we are under a new covenant because of Jesus. We're no longer under this covenant of law. We are under a covenant of grace. Hallelujah. That is a good thing for you and I, friend, because it is very hard to live under a covenant of law. Because we all end up making mistakes and falling short. How many of you are happy that you are under grace? A few of you. Amen. (laughs) Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. This is why Paul says put no confidence in the flesh. People want to bring human effort to our faith. And we cannot add to the gospel. What Jesus did on the cross was all Him, one and done. I had no part in it. I could never deal with my sin on my own. I needed a Savior. We needed a Savior. But it wasn't enough here as Paul's writing to the Philippians for him to just say that. Paul gets really personal. What does he say? Well, he goes, and he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone else could do this, it was me, surely. And he even starts to go through and he says, he says, when he starts this, he says, he says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Paul's repeating himself. These people know this. I believe we know this. But this word and this passage is safe for us and it's good to be reminded and to hear it again. So Paul uses himself in this example. He goes through his qualifications. He lists four inherent privileges and then he lists three significant accomplishments that he's done in his own effort under the law. His pedigree and his performance were far superior than anything that you and I could accomplish. But yet he says, I take all of it and I count it as nothing and I put no confidence in the flesh. Can I encourage you? Do not rely on yourself. You cannot attain righteousness on your own. We can't. Righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone. You see, our flesh is deceitful. It'll trick you into thinking That you're good enough and strong enough and you can do it on your own. We can't. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. This is why Paul starts with this thing. He says, don't put confidence in the flesh. I surely can, but even I won't do that. So no matter how hard we try, what you can do in your own ability will not save you and it will not sustain you. No matter how hard, if it's all in our own ability, it will not save us and it will not sustain us. So where else does Paul go from here? What does he say? Well, the next thing for my second point is count it all as loss. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus All of my efforts, all of my attempts, they do not compare to his righteousness. We've got to do the math. I like math. Paul, for most of his life, up until that moment on the road to Damascus, he thought that his works and his efforts were like math. That I did this, and now I've got this, and now I've got this. And he was adding these things up, thinking that, hey, I'm pretty special, I have it made. But you you see, the thing is, if we're talking about math, Jesus came to him and said, no, no, Paul, it's not math because you are inherently sinful, whether maybe under the law in the form of your action, it didn't happen and you can say on paper that you haven't sinned. Jesus said, no, it's an attitude in the condition of your heart. And all of a sudden, there's a recognition that no matter how good we try, that we all sin and fall short. And he says, no, Paul, it's not like math. It's like multiplication. And because you're sinful, you have to take all of that number, all the things you're adding up, and you have to multiply it by zero. Some of you need to go back and do some math. If you take one times it by zero, your answer is zero. If you take two, multiply by zero, it's still zero. No matter how big a number, no matter how great it looks, Whew, that's a big number. Well, wow, look at all these things. The moment you multiply it by zero, it's nothing. It's nothing. Paul says, count it all is no loss. We have to do the math. Paul does it. He says, it's nothing. And it doesn't matter how impressive our works and our efforts are. Salvation cannot come based on those. Righteousness cannot come based on those. Are you following with me? So all of our efforts, our accomplishments, our good deeds They do not compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He counts it as loss because the value of knowing Jesus was worth more. And the only way to access that was through Christ and through faith. There's no better investment than to invest in knowing Jesus. There's nothing better you can do with your time and effort. than than spending it getting to know him more. I want to encourage you with that. Life is short. Take your time. Invest in in this relationship. Nothing will be more rewarding than that. I also want to say, too, that we don't then, coming to this revelation of Jesus, we don't add our efforts to what he did on the cross. They don't add anything to this finished work. Martin Luther said this, he said, Our works do not generate righteousness. Rather, our righteousness in Christ generates works. Our righteousness in Christ generates works. Yes, God has stuff for us. He's called us to live holy and set apart, but not to earn salvation that was bought and paid for. Amen? The next thing I see when I read this is be found in him. What can we do? We can be found in him. He says, I counted all as loss. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness of Christ that depends on faith. How can we get this close to God? How can we get this close to him? How can we gain Christ? How can we be found in him? This holy and mighty and all-powerful God, how can we come into his presence? The answer is righteousness. Righteousness means this, to be morally right and justified, to be guiltless and blameless. It primarily describes conduct in relationship to others, And this begins in our relationship to God. And remember that as sinful people, we are separated from having relationship with a holy and pure God. So if we want to get into his presence, if we want to be found in him, if we want to know him, we've got to deal with this mess. We've got to deal with the sin and we need righteousness. To be right with God means we no longer are kept at a distance from him because of sin, but we are brought in close. Being right with God is an unattainable thing in our human effort. It's unattainable. Galatians 2.21 says it very plainly. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. John Calvin says this, We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. Righteousness is given by grace, and it's received through faith in Christ. So what can we do? We can be found in Him. Let me show you what I mean. Righteousness looks like something. We can demonstrate it. When we come to Jesus with our sin, we're not holy yet. We're not righteous in our own strength. There's actually nothing we could do. So, what does he do? Well, the word says that he clothes us in righteousness. Here's me, a mess. And I come to Jesus, and he puts righteousness around me. He comes and clothes me in righteousness. In my own, I am unrighteous. It's still me under here. I'm not perfect but God clothes me with righteousness. This means that when he sees me, he sees righteousness because of his son. Not my efforts. My efforts couldn't do this. My efforts couldn't wash me clean. Only Jesus could do this. This is a righteousness that comes from him. You know, When I was telling you that story of me coming back to Jesus, I had a relationship with Jesus when I was a kid. My parents raised me well to know Jesus, but I had gone on a long walkabout and I was down a dark path and I was not in a good place. I was a mess and I came back to Jesus. I was reminded that all of my sin Even the new stuff that I'd gotten myself into was bought and paid for. And I picked this up and he put it on me. If you think that your sin is too much for him to deal with, you're wrong. If you've strayed and think you can't come back to him, you're wrong. If you think that wherever you're at in life, you just can't come back, to God, because he won't take you, because he's going to see all of your sin. You're wrong. Friend, it was bought and paid for on the cross, and he has clothed us in righteousness, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Amen? What does this mean? It means that God sees me just as if I have not sinned. That word is justification. I am free from the penalty of sin. It is a one-time event. Jesus did it on the cross. And the only way that we are justified is through faith and faith alone. Thank you, Martin Luther and the Reformation for what you did at that time. He stood up and he said, no, this is what the word says. We are justified by faith alone, not by works. But you know, some of you might know this especially if you know me well. I'll let you in on a secret. I'm not perfect. <laughs> All right. I'm not perfect. I'm still under here. I still have wrestled with sin. I still have issues. God's dealing with that. That process is called sanctification, where I'm still justified by faith. I still have righteousness, but God is sanctifying me. He's dealing and he's working out the sin in my life. God has saved me and set me free, and he's continuing his work in my life. This is the freedom from the practice of sin. We will all wrestle with the freedom of the practice of sin in our lives. This is how it is, because sin is in the world, and we have a flesh that really likes to go down that path. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? So be found in him. Stay close to him. Let him work in your life. Make sure you're focusing on this is your righteousness, not your efforts. Stay close. Stay close. One day, friends, one day, we are going to be free from that wrestle with sin. And you know what? One day is coming where we're going to be glorified Which means that we will, as Paul alludes to in this passage, we will rise to be with him in eternity. And in heaven, there is no more sin. Hallelujah. We will be free from sin. Amen? That is what we look forward to. That is our trajectory. That is what God has for us. And until then, let me say this. In Martin Luther's words, he says let Christ's righteousness and grace, not yours, be your refuge. Let his righteousness be your refuge. Come back to that righteousness of Christ. Remind yourself of what he has done and where you stand. It's really easy to get caught up puffing ourselves up based on our efforts and our accomplishments and our ideas. But remember, friend, When we come to Christ, it's only his righteousness that allows us into God's presence and into eternity. That's why Paul said, I count it all as nothing. What we do in works, good deeds, the things in our lives, we simply do out of a response because we love and appreciate Jesus and what he's done for us. Amen? Why is it so important that we understand this? Why is it so important for us as believers to have this grounded in our faith, I think the last thing that I see as Paul talks here is that God wants us to walk in his power. In verse 10, it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. To know him is speaking of intimacy and firsthand knowledge and experience. God wants us to have firsthand knowledge and experience with his power. In our lives and through our lives. And I believe that righteousness was dependent on Christ alone so that we would always be drawn back to an intimate relationship with Him. The goal was restoration to relationship with God. So if there was any measure that we could add to salvation— Well, then we might emphasize and focus on that, but because righteousness isn't in our own effort and it's only in him, it brings us back to him every time. It always brings us back to him. We stay close to him. God wants to work through us and empower us, and we have a powerful message. I was thinking about this. God doesn't want us to keep this to ourselves. If you saw somebody drowning, would you let him? One time I jumped into the water and pulled somebody out who was having a hard time. And I don't know, I don't know how it would have played out if I wasn't there, but I couldn't stand by and watch. If you had the cure to cancer, would you just sit on it? Friend, I know it's hard to believe but we have the best news, the gospel for people. It's better than both of these things because we all have an end that's coming. But there's an eternity that's coming and is waiting for you and I. There's an eternity that's coming for our city, for everyone that believes and chooses Christ as Lord and Savior. There's an eternity in heaven waiting for them. We have good news. And the power of God wants to work through our lives to tell it to people because God wants to rescue people from their sin. He wants to give them that cloak of righteousness. He wants to clothe them and save them and set them free. The resurrection power of Jesus is at work in us to rescue people from sin and death. Ravi Zacharias says this, Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. To make dead people alive. Let me tell you, when I started coming back to Jesus, I came into a service and we started worshiping and it was like I came home. I was back in the presence of God and I didn't, I could not believe I was overwhelmed that he welcomed me into that place. I was overwhelmed that he welcomed me into that place, that I could come back into his presence, come back into intimacy. And God is looking to bring everybody into that place. It's for everyone. In Romans eight eleven, it says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. That same resurrection power that welcomed me into his presence, that saved my soul and clothed me in the righteousness, that same spirit that's at work in me wants to work through me to reach others. God's rescue mission is now at work in my life that others may come to know what Jesus did. And he wants to work in your life in the same way. We can't escape sin without him. People in this world cannot escape sin without him. And we have the answer. We have it, it's Jesus. We have the answer. As a church, I think this really does bring us back to one of our core purposes which is to know Jesus and to make him known. And if we're going to make him known, we can't do it in our own strength and ability. We're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's given it to us. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would be attentive to what he's saying and what he's doing because the Holy Spirit is on mission, on mission to bring people to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings people to Jesus and he's at work in our lives to do it. This is the church that God has called us to be. A people that know where our righteousness comes from, where righteousness comes from, who are humble, but yet passionate about what he's done and that want to go out and bring people to the knowledge of him. I just want to end by saying this. By God's grace, His righteousness has empowered us. By God's grace, his righteousness has empowered us. And we can do it. We can do it, friends. This city needs Jesus. And you've been empowered to bring it to them. Amen? I'm going to turn it over to Andy. Thank you.